Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. Sitting outside a strip shopping center in Florida recently while waiting for my wife to check out a few of the stores located there, I was reading a news magazine and periodically people watching, which, as I've told you before, is a favorite hobby of mine, passing the time away when I have nothing else more important to do. Two situations came to disturb my quiet and relaxed afternoon. The first was that I couldn't help but notice how selfish some people are. I almost wanted to use the word arrogant to describe the blatant irresponsible actions that I observed the drivers of two cars make as I watched. Right beside where I was parked, there were two parking spaces posted as reserved for disabled drivers. I believe you know what I'm going to say. Both spaces were eventually taken by cars whose drivers had no apparent disability. Yet they had a sign hanging from their rearview mirror that had the familiar red circle on it indicating a disabled driver. But they both parked, opened their door and climbed out of the car just as good as I could do it. Holding their purse or shopping bag, they marched off to their respective destinations with no indications of difficulty at all, of leaving their disabled signs dangling in their cars to put off any policeman who may wonder if the cars were parked legitimately. Of course, I don't know all the circumstances, but it sure seemed to me that they were being quite dishonest and taking a parking spot away from someone who may really need it. Some people have no idea. The second situation that afternoon concerned an article I read in this news magazine. The article was entitled, Man Suddenly Gets to See the Start of the Universe. According to the journalist who wrote the article, and I want to quote him exactly as he wrote it, no one yet knows how the universe came into existence. That's the end of the quote. Finally, a clear and precise admittance. From the secularist point of view, of course, because I know how the universe came into existence, don't you? I believe you do know. In the beginning, God created it. He brought it into existence. While scientists who do not believe that simply profound statements strive to find answers, the answers that we already know. One day they too will come to understand, either in this life or in the one to come. In the same article, the author seems to want to allow for both sides of the argument when he wrote, as a result of the recent discoveries in the scientific world, he said, those who believe the cosmos were created by God are as free as they were a week ago to continue in that belief, as are those who think the whole thing is a chance result of a quantum fluctuation in the nothingness beforehand. Put like that, it almost seems as if the author feels, as I do, that the best and most honest explanation for the question of how did it all begin is the one that says, God created. Much better and less faith actually required than to try to believe in a chance result of a quantum fluctuation in the nothingness beforehand. No question. 
Lord, we come in your name, gathered here to worship you, join us in harmony, Join our hearts together in love And fall like the dew On the mountains descending Join our hearts together in love Join our hearts together in love for there the Lord has commanded the Join our hearts together in love. Join 
And now with this message for today, here is Senior Pastor Emeritus, Alan Lee. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I continue with our focus on the family from a biblical and Christian perspective, and specifically to discuss some of the practical implications of the theological concepts we have discussed in previous messages. Thus, I will deal with the two major areas in the marriage relationship that was perverted because of the sin of Adam and Eve, and specifically as described in Genesis 3.16, which states, quote, To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. End of quote. Now, as we saw in our last message, two major distortions of marriage were affected by this judgment. First, the wife's attitude toward the bearing of children, and second, the tension that will come about within the marriage relationship because the wife will seek to dominate her husband, and the husband will seek to hold on to his divinely given role of headship, but now he will do so against a resistant wife, hence the ongoing struggle to answer the question, who is boss in the family? Today's message will focus on the headship of the husband. Is it dictatorial or directive? Or, to put it another way, what is the meaning of biblical headship? Next time, Lord willing, we will focus on the wife and ask the question, the Christian wife and submission, is it subservient or respondent? Our text for today is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 33. Notice some of the salient points taught here. First, the subjects of the headship or the issues of the headship of the husband and the submission of the wife are given in the context of the command to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. In other words, the husband's headship as well as the wife's submission is an aspect or evidence of being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. Both are a spiritual activity done in the energy of the Holy Spirit. To put it succinctly, obedience is an indication that a husband or wife is in fact Fill with the Spirit in these areas. Second, two basic principles are delineated concerning submission. First, the call to submission is universal. That is, it is given to all Christians. Secondly, the motivation to submission is godly fear. Text says we are to do this in the fear of Christ. Now, in connection with this, there are two aspects of living in the fear of Christ. First, it's the present context. Here is where we reverence God in our everyday life, our everyday experience, through obedience to His Word and the imitation of His life. As far as the future aspect is concerned, we live in anticipation of the Bema or the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. I quote now the Word of God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, notice now, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. End of quote. 
Now it is in verse 23 that the reality of the husband's headship is declared. Here's what the text says. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Note several things here. First, this position of headship is a divinely delegated position. Paul clearly designates this also in 1 Corinthians 11.3 where he says, and I quote now, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. End of quote. But now notice also that the standard for the husband's headship is also clearly delineated in the latter part of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 where the text says, The husband is the head of his wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Notice, the husband-wife relationship with the husband as head pictures Jesus Christ's relationship to his church, which is his bride. He is the head of the church, not only in the sense of chronological priority, in the sense of origin or source, but positional priority as well, in the sense of rank or authority. Jesus is the head of the church. And Paul is teaching that's the same way that the husband is the head of his wife. This divinely given headship is a position that is to be voluntarily transformed in obedience to an imitation of Christ. In other words, in the context in which Paul has been writing here, this is something that is to be radically different than what was done or is, was being done at the time. In other words, this is a new and revolutionary truth that is being taught by the Apostle in our passage for his day. It turns the concept of authority on its head when it comes to the husband-wife relationship. Paul wants to show that this is entirely different from what the world and society has experienced to this point. And that he presents the concept of servant leadership in the context of the headship of the husband over his wife. The concept of servant leadership. Husbands, Paul is teaching, lead by serving their wives. That is, we do not use our position as husbands as a means of suppression or power, but as a means of serving our wives' needs and being concerned more for, for them than for our own selves. In other words, it really has to do more with attitude than with position or rank. Now, two factors are also involved there. First, the husband's headship is not absolute, but limited. The text says, as Christ loved the church, he is our model. Our headship as husbands are to reflect and manifest the character of Jesus Christ as head of his church, his bride. We can do nothing toward our wife that would be different from what Christ does for his church. That's the standard. That's the limitation. But note also, the husband's headship relates only to his own wife. This is therefore not an overall comprehensive rule that is stated here, one that has to do with a man's position over women in general. But in this passage, it relates only to the husband-wife relationship, his own wife, not someone else's wife or women in general. That's very important to note. But third, the exercise of this headship has to do with humility rather than power. And that is the characteristic of Christ that is to be displayed by Christian husbands 
who are exercising godly headship over their wives. It's the characteristic of Christ, which is humility, not power. And remember, as it has been well stated, humility is not weakness. Rather, it is power under control. And that's what godly headship is. Power, authority, under control. Now, the final verses in this passage, verses 25 to 33, elucidates the standard for the husband's headship. The divine mandate is given in verse 22, which says, Husbands, love your wives. Notice, this is a command, my friends. It is not a suggestion or a simply good advice. It is a command that must be obeyed by husbands. To disobey is to sin. To be submissive to Christ, then, as husbands, we must love our wives whether we feel like doing it or not. Now, unfortunately, time does not allow in this message to elaborate on this biblical concept of loving because it is command and it's not based on feeling. But the command is clear. Christian husbands, to be Christians, must love their wives. This is so because our divine model or example is Jesus Christ himself. The text says we are to love our wife as Christ loved the church. Precisely how this is done is explained in the text as well. First, total commitment is demanded. It says, as Christ gave himself up for her. This speaks of sacrificial, unselfish love. That's the kind of love the husband who is exercising godly headship over his wife is to exercise. Sacrificial, unselfish love. Second, an immediate goal is also stipulated, and that is to prepare our wife to be a usable instrument in the hands of God. This models what Christ is doing for his espoused bride. The text says that he is doing it so that he, that's Christ, might sanctify her, that's the church, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. End of quote. In other words, it's what we would call now a discipling process. That is the ongoing methodology presented here. We could describe it as discipling our wife through the word of God. So we could say that the great command for a husband is, love your wife and disciple her, throughout your marriage. Paul also reveals the ultimate purpose for this lifelong discipling process, and that is, it is the spiritual maturity of our wife. That is the goal. Notice what verse 27 says, as Paul describes the objective of Jesus' ministry or discipling of his church. He says he's doing it in order that he might present to himself, the church, in all of glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. End of quote. What a beautiful concept this is. The husband is commanded to do for his wife exactly what Christ commanded his church to do, to disciple them so they be led to spiritual maturity. What an amazing truth this is. And notice how Paul applies this in verse 28. He says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. End of quote. This is a magnificent passage, friends. This is a divine template here. Paul goes on to reveal that the husband-wife love is natural or automatic. 
He is to regard his wife as a part of himself. He is therefore to treat her as himself, because in actuality he is a part of her. The husband-wife love is also complete. In verse 29 it says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Notice two aspects here. Nourishing has to do with the meeting of physical needs. Cherishing has to do with the meeting of emotional needs. And so Paul is saying that a man exercises his godly headship over his wife when he sacrificially meets both the physical and emotional needs of his wife. Paul then emphasizes the divine pattern again in verses 29 and 30. He says, even as Christ also nourishes and cherishes the church. This is a divine principle that is stated here. And he solidifies it in verse 21, where he states another divine principle, a cause for all of this type of a lifestyle. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice three aspects here. First, the word leave. This teaches, says a husband must sever or break parental priority before the husband-wife relationship can be permanently established. It is the wife now, not the mother, not the husband, that is to be given priority in this new family. Then the word cleave. This teaches that the husband commits to permanent, lifelong relationship in his marriage. If it's one thing that a man who's exercising godly headship over his wife should never contemplate is that of divorce. That should never come to, into the mind of a godly man. Then, one flesh. This indicates a relationship that is closer and more intimate than even the parent-child relationship. This is the true essence of marriage. Husband and wife become one flesh. That's why the husband is to exercise his headship over her and love his wife even as himself, because she is a part of himself. Paul ensures that the husband-wife relationship is special. It is unique. He says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul is very clear here. He's speaking about a very unique relationship, and a relationship can only be experienced by, the, by those applying the, the effects of the cross, the effects of redemption to their relationship. Now next time, Lord willing, we will discuss the aspect of a wife's submission to a husband. Exactly what does it mean and how is it demonstrated in actual experience? Until then, this is Senior Pastor Emeritus Alan Lee saying, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, 
a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. The great commander's promise, he will surely come again. I am listening every morning for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be Happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every morning for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be in a moment Jesus Christ could come again